Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau, and as usual, I'm joined by Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Good to speak to you. We, uh, we haven't done this in a while. No, it's six weeks, maybe, since we've done it. Something like that. It's, it's at least a, a month or so. It's been... Uh, the last podcast we actually recorded together was the Night of the Hunter one because the Wire one went up and we recorded that over a year ago yeah so it's been pretty lean on the podcast front Um, uh, Shot Reverse, Shot Towers has been uh, vacated for the summer because I have been off getting married and uh, um, doing selfish things like that when I should have been dedicating more time to the fine art of podcasting but I've then been on honeymoon and I've been kind of swanning around um, like a ruddy grown up uh, which is um, apt given that this week's theme see this segue Ed this is this is priceless um, it is, that is beautifully worked out and also it gets us out of the way of of, of uh, talk, explaining your marriage just for all of our teenage uh, female fans you know we don't want them to hear it second hand yeah, yeah, and the male fans as well. You know, and the male fans, yeah, that's a good point. Anything's possible these days, Ed. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yes, we're we're talking about adulthood. It's part of our the third part of our um, multi-part Ages of Man podcast series. We've done childhood, we've done adolescence, and now adulthood. So we'll be looking at uh, everything from uh, the kind of post-college funk to the midlife crisis and beyond. But you know, speaking of the fact that I've just been married. Um, you know, there's a lot of weddings in films, and uh, weddings are often used as devices in films to kind of bring fam- a lot of people together, you know, families together in one place. Um, and um, you know, The Godfather being a perfect one. That that wedding scene at the start of uh, of the of the film sets up the whole saga, really, doesn't it? Because we see the family, and then more and most importantly, we see the family from an outsider's perspective, with Diane Keaton being there. Yeah, but and also kind of getting them at their kind of like most likable, mm. um, considering the amount of violence and murder that then occurs over the course of the rest of the film. But you even see, you know, when they're talking to like the FBI guys who are outside or the the um, the press photographers, they just kind of seem like uh, sort of just like a family that are being imposed upon by outsiders. Mm. As opposed to like violent criminals who probably deserve to be imposed upon. Yeah, yeah. What other like uh, great movie weddings are there? Are there? Uh, one that I'm quite fond of, although it's probably not a great film, is the Robert Altman film A Wedding. Oh yeah. Um, which is, as the name suggests, take place entirely at a wedding. And um, he said uh, that he. Uh, did that film as a gag or as a bet because when he was making Nashville someone asked him you know if he'd made a film with sort of uh, 20 uh, main characters what's his next film going to be he says uh, I'm going to do 30 main characters and it's going to be set at a wedding and then he did Um, (laughs) and it's a it's an interesting film because it it tries to capture the sort of the, the chaos the sort of controlled or barely controlled chaos of a of a, uh, of a of an actual wedding for all the various members of the two families coming together mm. and then and all of the different sort of psychodramas that then result of the tensions of all the various family members and all of the sort of long lasting feuds and things coming to the foreground and sort of new relationships forming old relationships being tested and it's it kind of fulfills that thing that a lot of Altman's big ensemble films do which is this kind of uh, diaspora of uh, of sort of American life and class and things like that by placing it at a single location over the course of a day. It's quite a shaggy story and not that many of the characters are particularly well-rounded because there's so fucking many of them. Mm. And uh, at a certain point, you kind of give up trying to remember who the fuck anyone is. Mm. <laughs> uh, and you just you just kind of enjoy the kind of the chaos of it all. But uh, it is... Uh, that I, I've always been quite fond of that one at capturing just this, this sort of... the in some ways the sort of the terror of a wedding really mm. I, of, of that sort of scale uh, I bang on about this film enough but that's that film the, A Wedding sounds like a precursor to something like Rachel Getting Married 
yeah it's got a lot of um shades of that uh the, the only sort of the major difference between them is obviously rachel getting married is a lot more focused mm. yeah essentially having only a handful of sort of major characters as opposed to dozens upon dozens uh, can you think of any films where um well more specifically like the the idea of getting married and the pressures that that has is is um and kind of maybe the, the doubts that certain characters feel taking that step uh is most often handled in like romantic comedies um mm. is is that because it's not a particularly dramatic thing you know uh especially when something like divorce or uh, kind of a, an affair is much more kind of interesting dramatically yeah I think that there is a lot of drama to be kind of um, to be sort of gleaned from it but I, do, I think there may be a sense that people have that if you focus too much on a wedding for dramatic purposes it will just kind of bum people out it's much nicer to kind of think of the wedding as a sort of a culmination of sort of a happier story whereas if you kind of focus on it from the perspective of sort of people getting married who don't really want to get married sort of if it's an arranged wedding or something like that mm. but uh you know i think there are there are plenty of films that do kind of do that sort of thing well um monsoon weddings a great example yeah of a film that kind of captures that from a sort of dramatic standpoint yeah um uh, that's, that's the only one i can think of off the top of my head yeah um yeah i was kind of more thinking that you never really see a film where someone's like like properly thinking oh my god I'm going to get married I've got such pressure um, and it being a kind of serious film it's always a kind of a frothy romantic comedy where like Runaway Bride yeah or you know something like that it's always, it always seems to be the film that works out ending with a wedding and it being good do you know what I mean mm. yeah I just wondered whether weddings um, didn't quite have that kind of uh, dramatic feel to them unless it's Game of Thrones in which weddings generally bad news um well, yeah more more often than not <laughs> yeah. uh well the flip side of the the wedding uh, as an adult rite of passage on film rite of passage probably wrong uh choice of phrase there but divorce is uh, something that is very much even though uh, mr henry the 8th thank you mr the 8th um brought us divorce um it's very much a kind of latter 20th century concern isn't it and uh on film um it's really kind of the latter half of uh, the 20th century that we do kind of get to see that kind of coming through as a as a theme and stuff like uh, Kramer versus Kramer is probably um, the the kind of the big one isn't it I guess and then Squid and the Whale a bit later yeah and also you can see you know there are sort of precursors to that in something like Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from Marriage which is not just a film that it, a film that uh, culminates in a divorce but is um, I think it may have started out as a four-part um, series, essentially showing the gradual sort of decline and death of a marriage, mm. um, which is very, again, kind of comes about in the 70s. And I think you can really see sort of societal shifts there, people starting to destigmatize divorce as it becomes less of a, um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, you don't get divorced because it implies uh, sort of uh, it's sort of for, for religious reasons you know that it's against God you know you make this commitment that's meant to last for life and if you you divorce then that's an immoral thing to do um, and then as sort of the time goes on that becomes less of a concern for people and you know obviously now divorce is you know so commonplace mm. that you know it, it can be sort of mined and I think the the most interesting period really for sort of films about divorce is probably that sort of latter half of the 20th century just because there's that tension between older generations who still think divorce is this absolutely terrible um sort of life-ending thing and sort of the younger generation for whom it's you know not a not necessarily a sort of the best case scenario but it's not something to absolutely fear you know you start to get that kind of thing louis ck talks about where he says you know no good marriage has ever ended in a divorce mm. um you know sort of that that sort of view starts to become slightly uh more uh more popular more mm. accepted yeah um there is of course the ultimate film uh based around divorce um which um kind of really does deliver the most dramatic uh, kind of gut punch kind of emotionally resonates with everyone which is uh, Mrs Doubtfire yes 
um, because that film really does show the effects of a divorce uh, psychologically on a man <laughs> who is then forced to, to dress up as a Scottish housekeeper. Yeah, he has such a psychotic break mm. that he, he takes on another persona and slams his face into a green cake, as so many divorced men have at one point or another. Yeah, I know that the internet, like makes pretty much anything possible right you can kind of get a super cut or anything you like of anything I would love to see Mrs Doubtfire edited together like with all the gags taken out and like like a kind of serious score added to make it a kind of a quite, a quite gruelling drama about a man having the worst mental breakdown of all time I think you could probably also do that for Patch Adams <laughs> but then someone would have to sit and watch Patch Adams yeah, and I wouldn't a... wish that on anyone no that's uh that's that's a fate worse than death. That um, <laughs> starting in the kind of the, the order of adulthood after we've got this kind of wedding divorce stuff out of the way, um, the first kind of throes of adulthood would be you know the college years. But we kind of touched on that with the uh, the adolescence podcast. But the kind of the post collegiate years uh, that you know I like to call the post uni funk because everyone has it, especially if you uh, do a degree in the arts or humanities and you come out of university maybe bright eyed and thinking wow you know it's going to be great out there uh, and then you realise that you know within a year you're just doing a temporary job to kind of fill a gap and then five years later you're still doing that job and some other people are doing okay and you, yeah it's this kind of whole thing about you've just kind of done this huge thing of going to university and then afterwards there's this malaise um, what films really tackle that malaise uh, best? Uh, I think the, the kind of the key one, because it was one of the first to really kind of grapple with it well, was um, Mike Nichols' The Graduate, mm. which um, obviously it begins with uh, Dustin Hoffman graduating from university and coming home to uh, live with his parents, but there's a wonderful, the wonderful shot at the beginning of the film of him just on an escalator at the airport, standing perfectly still with sort of no expression on his face and sort of gliding forwards, so kind of being moved but having some no sort of agency, which is kind of a wonderful sort of visual metaphor for where he is at this point in his life, where time is moving forward, but he's standing still and has no real sense of what he is supposed to do at this point now that, you know, he's gone through it all and he just spends the summer kind of in the pool trying to avoid the question of, you know, when's he going to get a job, when's he going to go to graduate school and things like that. Mm. And then from that, you know, his affair with Mrs. Robinson kind of emerges from that sense of just kind of boredom and not really wanting to sort of face the sort of the future in any way. Um, and I think that that film just wonderfully captures that in such a sort of a, a sort of heartbreaking and really really funny way. Mm. Um, so like it's one of those films that I think still resonates now because even though some of the uh, sort of reference points like the, there's the point where you know someone comes to him and tells him the future is in plastics <laughs> which was true in 1967 but is a sort of now seems kind of incredibly quaint mm. to think that that's the future and where you can make all your money um, it is uh, it, it really kind of cap hits all of those points really really beautifully mm. and uh do you think that um, there's any other films that uh, the one that pops to mind is Adventureland? Uh, yeah, that's that, one uh, on my list. Yeah, kind of something that's a bit more recent, where uh, you know he's, uh, he, he's also a graduate from from college and is that whole kind of aimless drifting along thing, and he he hasn't quite found himself yet, and he kind of needs that those experiences to kind of help him do that. Yeah, and in that instance, you know, the Jesse Eisenberg character is. It, it, there it's the idea of kind of a plan derailed because his um, I think his father loses his job doesn't he so they can't afford to send him back to to school to, to graduate school that he wants to go to so he's forced to um, work the summer at the Adventureland Park while he basically can apply to go to a cheaper college or something mm. and, and sort of so from there it, it also gets that idea of um having had direction and then having that direction completely taken away which the graduate also has but there it's you know you go through school you go through college and then you get to the end of it and then suddenly you know don't have that 
kind of structured direction of where you're going where you know you're going through each grade or each year of the school year until you reach a certain point and then suddenly it's a case of you know you you could theoretically do anything mm. and that kind of choice is kind of paralyzing yeah there is as uh, as well as the sort of the lack of sort of lack, lack of opportunity and things like that so in the case of Adventureland that is the the situation is he doesn't have the opportunity to do anything other than work in a sort of crappy amusement park mm. there is a, a, a kind of thread of films that have and um, I suppose it's kind of there's in literature as well um, that deal with kind of what we probably call an early midlife crisis everyone thinks of midlife crisis being something that happens when you're kind of in your, your kind of 40s or late 30s but there is a uh, a definite feel of like they're being kind of maybe premature midlife crises and we think in films like uh, Garden State uh, which is a film I fucking hate uh, but um, uh, 500 Days of Summer as well uh, which another film I'm not keen on um, things like a Young Adult uh, is definitely one uh, Office Space uh, another that kind of that feeling that it's not quite kind of drastic my life's going to end but it's my life hasn't quite begun or it's going and it's not really going how I want it to yeah it's that idea of kind of being stuck in a, stuck in a rut which also comes into the midlife crisis that sense of not knowing where you're meant to be going and just kind of keeping in the same doing the same sort of routine over and over again um, and not really being quite sure how you uh, reach that point you know I think you can definitely see that in something like um, Gross Point Blank mm-hmm. uh, which is a film I love I really oh, like uh, I love that film Gro- as well I really like Gross Point Blank there but there obviously it's kind of played for it's really played for laughs the sort of the quarter life crisis that he has is that you know he's a hitman and he's kind of wondering if uh that's the way he should have gone with his life. Mm. <laughs> if that was a good, if that was a good choice, um, uh, and obviously it's a perfectly fine uh, vocation. Um, but you know that he kind of goes back to school and is uh, to, to to his ten year high school reunion is reunited with all of his uh, the people that used to be in his life, and that eventually sort of uh, causes him to have this moment of revelation where he thinks that maybe killing people is a bad idea. Mm. I think that like people, people always. When I was at university and we were studying high concept, mm-hmm. um, and the example that our lecturer used to to um, describe the concept of high concept, which you know, a film or a, an idea, a film that is basically, uh, it's not uh, a series of events that happen and things that are. It's just an idea, and everything around the film falls into that. And the one they always used to say was. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito are twins <clears throat> and that encapsulates high concept because there's nothing in the film twins that never that never at any point doesn't tie back to that that that, that sentence but if you were to say gross point blank and you could say hitman goes to school reunion <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, that perfectly encapsulates every scene of that entire film obviously the film is way more complex and uh, kind of interesting than that but as a, as a soundbite pitch Hitman Goes to School Reunion brilliant perfect it's a great film that um, I think Young young Adult uh, a film that I kind of maybe underestimated the first time I saw it um, does that incredibly well but for kind of a, a kind of a much maybe darker uh, effect yeah because there the, the quarter life crisis thing is not necessarily just through inertia it's because you know she has sort of carved out a fairly sort of reasonably sort of successful life herself sort of ghostwriting teen lit novels she seems to have a decent amount of money uh, but she just kind of is sort of weighed down by this depression that's set up on her because you know she's clear even though she has kind of got away from the the sort of the suburb that she grew up in and she uh, doesn't have she has sort of the life that she probably thought she wanted when she left school mm. she's just not at all satisfied with it and that's why she is sort of completely depressed and sort of and why when she sees the and then she kind of transfers that depression into a certain amount of agency in her decision that you know hey 
this guy has sent me a for an email picture of his kid maybe I, that means he wants to get back together mm. which is the 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 most sort of unbelievable and sort of illogical sort of thought process to go through but when someone's in that sort of mental state of just being so thoroughly depressed and and not at all happy with the way things are going um, sort of crazy things start to make sense and that's a really good example of, of that being used for sort of very very funny purposes but also yeah as you say it's because it, for, for these sort of dryly dark purposes as well mm. here's a thought um, the film Lost in Translation um, is features a, a kind of an early midlife crisis with the Scarlett Johansson character uh, kind of aimlessly drifting around alive not really knowing what to do but then it's also a midlife crisis film because mm. obviously Bill Murray is having a midlife crisis and those two people in crisis find each other and you know a lot of stuff ensues to a achingly hip soundtrack uh, as you can probably tell I'm not a fan of the film Lost in Translation um, but do you think that that's um, well, where's the emphasis in that film who is the, the kind of the lead in that film and and you know, is it just whingy people that just, you know, just get on my tits? Um, I think it's, I think they are both the co-leads because they are both going through their, their shared crises and that's what kind of draws draws them together. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, of Lost in Translation either. Oh, but... I'm so glad you said that. Because <laughs> my, my problem with it is like, I think Sofia Coppola mistakes looking out of a window while air is playing as depth to character <laughs> where that isn't that's just looking out of a window while air is playing yeah it is it does seem like a film that is a bit of a void which the audience kind of then fills mm. like she leaves a lot of lot unspoken and just relies heavily on atmosphere and then sort of everyone kind of like watches it and then kind of feels fills in the blank spaces themselves mm. and that's a perfectly fine way and I think that's why a lot of people do get a lot from the film as they look at it and they kind of they they are kind of drawn to it but in terms of sort of sort of sad romance sort of pseudo sad pseudo romances um you know i'll take in the mood for love <laughs> which it, it it borrows somewhat from it does and in the mood for love uh wipes the fucking floor with lost in translation um and yeah. does the ending better as well it definitely does essentially the same ending yeah, it's just but one is Bill Murray, the other is a tree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, a magic um, tree. Yeah. Um, the oh, I loathe the phrase, but mumblecore uh, mm. is a genre. Is it a genre? It's just they're just low budget films. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know why do we have to call it mumblecore? But you know, just for the sake of uh, convenience, mumblecore films pretty much all revolve around uh, people in their kind of mid to late twenties. Uh, having some kind of uh, uh, kind of neuroses about the state of their lives. Will the mumblecore genre, if you ever want to call it that, uh, be able to escape uh, the fact that its milieu is essentially a load of 20 something privileged white people talking about how they've struggled to release an album? I think it will, but I think it's going to. The problem is that the, the sort of the pioneers of the movement are people who mm. are sort of white 20-somethings who are who has entered the, the whole reason that kind of mumblecore kind of grow and I, I don't like the term as well I have nothing against the genre I think the genre is perfectly fine but I really don't mm. like that term um, I think that the, the way that grew up was you know we've talked a little bit about this when we did our episode about um, digital filmmaking people suddenly had the access to the equipment to actually make those sort of films relatively cheaply and mm. the sort of people who are drawn to making films are sort of like people in their 20s who think that you know hey you know I could write a film and then you give them the opportunity then it's like you say oh everyone can make a film maybe not everyone should but you know everyone can do it and they go out and they, they sort of make films about their lives and so that's where the kind of the, the sort of the mumbly sort of introspective kind of um, thing comes around but, and I think as the people who make those films grow up and the people who aren't really that good kind of get phased out and the people who are really good, you know, like the Duplass brothers, like Joe Swanberg, as they kind of grow up and as they mature as filmmakers and as people, I think they'll start to make 
different films in the same aesthetic because it's the aesthetic that they know. Um, mm. And I think you can still you can, you can see films that are playing with that. Like there's a film called uh, Cold Weather by a guy named Aaron Katz, which is essentially a Sherlock Holmes story done in a mumblecore style. Um, mm. You mentioned Baghead, which is you know a, a film that is a it's a horror film that uses the mumblecore style. So I think that you know the, the aesthetic can be applied to anything, but you know it's a weird thing that like mumblecore isn't really a movement so much as it is a a style that has been sort of co-opted and you know initially just arose as a as a necessity because it's like what kind of films can you make cheaply with mm. sort of non-actors but in order to just make a film and then when sort of the dupe, when the puffy chair and stuff kind of breaks through then everyone else kind of thinks hey this is the thing this is how you make a mumblecore film and it kind of starts sort of Snowball, snowballing um, out of control um, and mm. I think that the the people who kind of make it through this kind of period where people kind of think mobile cause a thing when it's not it's just a load of people making films they will kind of make films that aren't just kind of introspe- about introspective 20 or things Do you think that um, Lena Dunham is the person to kind of lead that type of film and out of out of that area, I think so um, because, but again, it's it's kind of, it's, for her. It's going to be about her sort of aging out of it because obviously her work sort of now is uh, you know making with tiny furniture and particularly with girls is kind of exploring the lives of of uh, people not dissimilar to her and sort of a few years younger than she is and kind of, but kind of exploring it with a sort of a depth and emotional maturity that I think a lot of other sort of mumblecore um, associated directors haven't really displayed so far um, mm. and, and obviously it kind of comes from a different point of view because she's a she's a woman and there aren't that many sort of women filmmakers and particularly in terms of mumblecore it tends to be lots of sort of like um, sort of milk toast sort of socially awkward young men tend to be sort of the, the centre of attention so her work is obviously feels different because it's got a different focus and it's got a different kind of sort of vibe to it mm. I mean there is uh, Lynn Shelton who uh, yeah. is doing stuff but I think the age um, difference between like, Lena Dunham and uh, Lynn Shelton is, is uh, significant enough to make their films different enough if you know what I mean, they're like it always. Lynn Shelton's kind of always looking back, whereas Lena Dunham's very much kind of in that as she's yeah. making those films. If she's looking back, it's like looking back over the last sort of six months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The kind of uh, fetal filmmaker that uh, <laughs> that Lena Dunham is, and uh, very good she is too. Um, I haven't got around to watching the second series of Girls yet. Uh, what's that like? It's a lot darker and sort of more abrasive. Than the first, the first one. There's a lot of sort of splintering of sort of friendships and relationships. Uh, it's it goes to some uh, it goes to some dark and very weird places. Um, it's very very interesting. It's very it, there there aren't as many kind of like laugh out loud moments as I think there are in the first season. But it's it's you know it, it's evolving as she is you know and because it's a TV show and because she's still sort of very young and she's still kind of exploring what she wants to explore uh, it's still very very good mm. Mm. Uh, it's definitely worth uh, looking out for um, the second to last episode has a very uh, intense scene uh, which I think uh, is is a very sort of brave thing to do with one of the more likeable characters I won't say what happens in it but anyone who's seen it kind of knows what it is uh, it's a very uh, it's a very interesting direction she takes it I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does with the third season which um, should be coming out any day now because she really cranks them out does the this uh, I haven't seen it the mystery scene that you're talking about does this character disappear into the jungle and find a mysterious hatch (laughs) Uh, because you know that would be bold uh, no, they sort of go it. They drown in a room, holding up a piece of paper saying "Not Penny's boat." Uh, right. I, I don't understand that reference. That is another lost reference. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I didn't get that far. <laughs> uh, yeah. But speaking of um, bold, uh, the TV's on in the background, and uh, above the law, starring Steven Seagal and Pam Grier is on. 
Nice. On nice. mine, I have uh, The Great Race, starring Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, which I'm guessing is probably uh, in quite a different tone to your one, being it's uh, essentially a live-action cartoon. Yeah, I think Sharon Stone's in this as well. Ah, always a sign of quality. Yeah. Um, and Well, uh, Steven Seagal is about half the weight he is now as well. Literally, wow. he's only got just the two chins at the moment. Um, in terms of leading on from, we just talked about the kind of the 20-something... Uh, the other like kind of approach to uh, not the other one. There's more than more than two, <laughs> um, but a, a kind of a prevalent thread in the uh, kind of 21st century um, is looking at that kind of state of arrested development. Now there's a show on television with that same name, but we've talked enough about that <laughs> in the past. But um, the kind of the main guy who talks about uh, people who just cannot grow up is a man called Judd Apatow. And uh, he's based his whole career around uh, 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 that idea, hasn't he? More or less, yeah. That's that's kind of the the thread running throughout uh, pretty much every film that he has uh, directed, and certainly the kind of the slew of films that he has uh, he has produced. And you can see it in obviously the Forty Year Old Virgin is kind of that idea in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Sort of a guy who has never had sex since the forties and is still single and just kind of doesn't really have any interest in it but is kind of not really able to sort of let people into his life um, Knocked Up has that in spades because it's essentially about a young guy who is who accidentally gets a woman pregnant and is kind of forced to sort of leave his stoner buddies behind and read the baby books and get a fucking job mm. um, you know so there is um, and you can just kind of see that in also, the stuff he's produced like super bad, but in super bad, you know, they're meant to be like 15. So, Arrested Development at that age is not quite as bad as it is when people are sort of in the, sort of their 30s and 40s. Mm. But um, looking back at, we've we've kind of had just over a decade of Apatow, the director producer. Um, I mean, obviously he did other stuff. Uh, he's kind of been in and around the scene for ages, but as a, as a kind of uh, an auteur of sorts. Um, we've had a decade of him. Um, he's got pretty tired, hasn't it? Pretty quickly. Yeah, I think um, the, the kind of the golden age for it was sort of from 2004 to, I don't know, maybe 2008, maybe maybe even just 2007, around about the time that you had the summer of Knocked Up and, and Superbad, and it's never really hit. In terms of his stuff, it's never really kind of recaptured that. Um, no, but but also you have the kind of the unfortunate problem that his success spurred on a lot of similar sort of things, and you know a lot of the stuff that kind of got commissioned in sort of his wake. A lot of it was quite funny stuff, like Wedding Crashes. You know, was was quite uh, quite a laugh. Um, Role Models is is pretty good. You know, there's there's a lot of films that kind of come out out of that in his wake, which are pretty good. But then you sort of get to sort of the Hangover trilogy. And you start to, uh, yeah, it starts to get sort of diminishing returns very quickly, and you get to the point where no one really seems to have much to say on mm. the subject. And I mean, specifically him himself. I mean, forty-year-old virgin and knocked up are both pretty good. They're, you know, they are what they are, but they're they're very funny, and you know, there's a there's a, a sweetness to them that kind of shines through. Uh, in some cases has to shine quite bright to cut through um, <laughs> but then Funny People and uh, was you know, a, a bit of a mess let's be honest and not particularly good and then This Is 40 I'm prepared to say was just fucking wank <laughs> <laughs> you know to put it bluntly it wasn't it wasn't good was it um, I liked it but I think it was more because I was watching it on a screener at home and I didn't have to pay for it Right. I think if I'd had to pay, I probably would have had um, sort of less positive thoughts towards it. Um, that one, yeah, that one is because he obviously relies heavily on improvisation, and in uh, in that you can really see the the problem of essentially just improvising your way around a story and not really knowing what you want to say, um, mm. and kind of having it getting very muddied in places because obviously in that, uh, a big part of that is they don't have enough money and then there's a huge section of it where they 
go to what looks like a very ex- expensive um, a very expensive hotel for like a weekend away and then mm. planning like a really big birthday party and uh, it kind of has that that thing of being in a sense about people struggling with financial problems but those people are actually very very well off so it doesn't really have the weight that you know the idea of struggling for money is meant to have and mm. when you can't really invest in the struggle of the characters it makes it harder to invest in the comedy really yeah and I, and I do think there are some kind of really funny moments I do really like um, Albert Brooks's turn in it um mm because obviously he's just a really skilled improviser. Anyone who's kind of listened to people talk about his work on The Simpsons, where he essentially makes up everything he says um, and just kind of has a huge amount of fun with it, will know mm-hmm. that. But, you know, you see in uh, in something like uh, This Is the 40, the, the sort of the limits to that style. Yeah, and it was very long, wasn't it? Yeah, like two and a half hours. Yeah, so that's yeah. his main problem, is he doesn't really... I've, I'm reading... Um, Woody Allen on Woody Allen at the moment and uh, in that uh, he talks, you know, when he's working on his first film, how he kind of cut it to the bone because he was just, he filmed all this stuff and he did loads of coverage and he didn't know how to kind of put it together in the editing room and he ended up with a really, really good editor who was able to assure him of what was working without it getting too flabby and mm. and that was kind of his modus operandi going forward was to always kind of cut to the bone and always do sort of a 90 minute film because he mm. was just really insecure and he didn't, oh, yeah. he, he didn't want it to be too long because he was afraid that you know, it wouldn't work and you kind of think that um, a little insecurity would probably do Judd Apatow some good mm. uh, Woody, <laughs> Al- Woody Allen on Woody Allen sounds like the most niche pornography ever <laughs> it really does although it'd I wouldn't be, want to watch that I think it would just be him playing both roles just kind of stressing <laughs> out over it for an hour and a half yeah, never really even get into foreplay. Just kind of just yeah, pl- just playing it over too much in his just mind. Just ten minutes. Yeah. Just most of it just going like, is this masturbation? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of like people who have built a career out of uh, of um, of characters who are essentially manchilds, then surely Adam Sandler, <laughs> pretty much every single film he's ever been in, uh, a, a man who just refuses to grow up. Uh, normally a sports obsessed uh, person who has a temper. Uh, he certainly has a type to play, doesn't he, Mr. Sandler? Yeah, and the thing is that it, he, the annoying thing is he keeps being rewarded for it. Yeah. Um, and so he is kind of like even this year with Grown Ups 2, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a lazy sequel to a lazy film where the only major difference, in, like, the only major difference in his films now from the ones he was making 10 years ago is he often has kids. Mm. Um, but yeah, he still plays. You can see that in like "That's My Boy," where the whole thing about it is he's a guy who knocked up his teacher when he was thirteen, and you know now he's a terrible father, and he but he still hasn't grown up. And you can see it in all of his films that he just he just has that sort of thing. But for some reason, or you know, his either his original audience hasn't outgrown him, or mm. the kids of his original audience still find his shit funny. Mm. Uh, it's yeah. I, I kind of hope agree. it's the second one because if if people in their forties still find Adam Sandler funny, then uh, it's depressing. Yeah, that's that doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Um, <laughs> but like, like this, the whole kind of man-child thing is very much always, or generally tends to be played for comedy. Um, is there a flip side to that? I mean, just talking about Adam Sandler, uh, is Punch Drunk Love the dark flip side to his his screen uh, career? Yeah, I think there it's it's less the man-child thing than it is the kind of the violence because I think certainly if you see you know the Waterboy and Happy Gilmore um, there's a there's a his characters are essentially just really really violent men who mm. subsume or uh, their their violence into their persona until a point where they unleash it in some way in the Waterboy it's released as kind of a, a cathartic moment in when he's playing football in Happy Gilmore it's just kind of like his way of upending sort of a class system at a country club. Um, it, whereas in uh, Punch Drunk Love, the, the Paul Thomas Anderson just kind of took the question of what would someone who was like this be like in the real world? And the answer is mm. incredibly disturbing to be around. <laughs> yeah. Um, as summed up by the scene where he smashes up the bathroom in uh, in when he's kind of on his date with Emily Watson. Um, mm. uh, wait, yeah, is Emily Watson? Yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. I was, I was just thinking if it was Emily Mortimer, but it's not. It's a, it's a, no. definitely a British Emily. We know that much. 
yeah. Um, I watched that film again, uh, kind of one well, in the last couple of months, and um, I'd, I'd only ever seen it once before. And on rewatch, uh, it blew me away sec- the second time around. Yeah, that's a film that I sort of rewatch you like once every couple of years or sometimes once a year and every time I just kind of I just love it more the the sort of the vibe for it's so fun and so disorientating particularly like the music which mm. uh, is just even if you just listen to it you just get a little bit discombobulated just in your sort of everyday life mm. um, but you know what the emotionally it's so good at getting you into the mind of Barry Egan like the I've never, I've rarely felt such a kind of a sympathy for a character than in the scene where he beats the living shit out of um, Philip Philip Seymour Hoffman's um, sort of goons, you know, when they mm. crash into his car and he just completely off uh, sort of unloads on them. And you just kind of really, you feel his anger at the situation, but you also just got up totally on his side because those guys are such absolute pricks. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. pricks. Yeah, totally. Um, the midlife crisis on film uh, there's quite a lot of material in there um, what do you think uh, is the, the main thread that runs through them is it that kind of uh, married with kids getting kind of drab and boring or is it the kind of career thing drifting out of the way or is it is it just that kind of general malaise of feeling like you're, you're shuffling slowly towards death I think it's that. I also think it, they tend to have sort of a, an incident, something that kind of, uh, kind of, causes someone to kind of confront the malaise because it's like it's not just the sense that they are captured at a point where you know things have kind of ground to a halt and they, they're, they're, someone might not really know what's going on in their life uh, or, or what direction they're heading. It's also where, for example, in sort of American Beauty, sort of when. Um, Kevin Spacey's character becomes obsessed with uh, Mina Savari's character uh, that kind of sort of really kind of throws his sort of life into sort of relief and that's kind of the thing that makes him you know quit his job and start working out in his garage and stuff like that and start smoking weed or in something like um, John Cassavetes' uh, husbands you know it's the, the three main characters meet up at this sort of funeral of a close friend and that is the kind of the thing that sends them on this sort of journey where they just kind of start drinking and sort of flirting with younger women and go to Europe and there is kind of where because they are sort of confronted with this the sort of the rem- this reminder of their own age and mortality that makes them kind of reconsider where their life is going and makes them kind of want to sort of sort of kick out a bit against it really I think that's what most midlife crisis films are really it's kind of an act of rebellion against wherever and against the sort of the unsatisfying nature of their lives Mm. Um, have you ever seen the John Sayles film called Liana Uh, no I've not seen that one yeah it's it's a pretty good one like and I think it kind of uh, touches on what you're talking about that kind of an incident forcing someone of a kind of advancing years to kind of reassess things and think about it it's about uh, the main character uh, of uh, Liana is basically a college professor's wife and basically decides that she's gay kind of right. uh, various factors uh, obviously the fact that she's gay is a pretty big factor um, but that's a really kind of uh, uh, cool look at that uh, that type of thing happening and it's a really kind of rare one that is told from a, like a woman's perspective uh, that yeah. isn't a kind of romantic comedy um, it isn't Shirley Valentine you know what I mean yeah I uh, think a lot of the a lot of the, the them tend to be from a male perspective um, as I think that's something you can kind of say for most cinema really because obviously it's a very male dominated uh, sort of industry and art form um, um, you know, I think you know you can see exceptions um, to that in sort of something like Alice doesn't live here anymore, um, mm-hmm. or, or women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. But I think there, what you can also see, or, or um, brief encounter. But I think what you kind of see there is the women's uh, the sort of midlife crisis is kind of precipitated by by the men in their life. Really, <laughs> I think yeah. a lot of them kind of. Um, kind of, it's you know they find out that their husband's been cheating on them, or the husband dies, and that kind of is what kind of spurs it on. Um, whereas I think in, um, in in a lot of sort of the male midlife crisis films, it's just a sense of dissatisfaction. It's it's yeah. rarely uh, uh, it's rarely kind of 
um, because uh, of them being wronged. And I think that that's a, a weird sort of imbalance. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Thelma and Louise is the film that just instantly entered my mind uh, of, uh, you know, women who decide to completely turn it around because their husbands are dicks, essentially. And not because they're just dissatisfied and, oh, okay, we'll do that. Yeah, although, um, you know, I think there are sort of examples of sort of, um, of uh, sort of men having that as well. Something like the the Tom McCarthy film, The Visitor, is, you know, it's about mm-hmm. a, a, prof- a professor who... Um, has you know his wife dies and then he goes to sort of visit his apartment in New York and finds that there's a sort of an illegal immigrant couple living there and that kind of kind of forces him out of his uh, malaise. Um, but that's kind of a rare example really where it's sort of a man being forced out of it as opposed to a man just kind of sort of just kind of deciding <laughs> that yeah. he's gonna that he he does have enough. Um, the Visitor is an amazing film that no one seems to have seen. Yeah, which is weird because it was obviously nominated for um, for Best Actor Oscar. It was that was the mm-hmm. surprise. That was the the big surprise that year um, for Richard Jenkins, uh, which is probably why he shows up in everything nowadays. Um, yeah. But that's that is a that's an amazing little film. Um, as are most of Tom McCarthy's films. They're all kind of amazing. Um, interesting fact about Tom McCarthy I learned uh, this week um, he directed the Game of Thrones pilot um, that was deemed unsatisfactory and they reshot like 70% of it yeah because I remember he was sort of hired to do it and I kind of thought you know with a Peter Dinklage connection that mm-hmm. seemed to make sense um, great name then... for a band by the way huh? great Peter name for a band <laughs> the Peter Dink- uh, kind of a prog rock band <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, he, he's still credited as like executive producer for the work that he did. I think. Yeah, it's one of those. Uh, he he has these kind of weird things recently where he's just kind of suddenly hit the zeitgeist. Where there was that him co-writing up, you know, he had mm-hmm. a good couple of years there where he just seemed to get sort of um, sort of grafted onto sort of these big cultural phenomena. Mm, yeah, um, are pretty much all of Woody Allen's films midlife crisis films? Uh, I think most of the, I was going to say most of the dramas, but I think even a lot of the comedies are. I think like if you look at something like Sleeper, you know, mm-hmm. when, uh, at, you know, and also this kind of goes for Idiocracy as well, which is obviously sort of Sleeper light. Um, you know, the idea is like the the guy is just incredibly average, sort of normal guy who's not terribly happy with where they are in life, and then they wind up in the future, and that makes them kind of special. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you can see that in sort of Hannah and his sisters. Um, Annie Hall probably is, isn't, I don't think, because it's more Man- about, Manhattan definitely is. Yeah, Manhattan definitely is. A lot of the ones where it's him and a younger girl, which it gets more um, gets more numerous as the, the, his career went on. <laughs> um, I think yeah, a lot of them kind of have that vibe of being a sort of a a a, a midlife crisis film. But I think. Uh, some of the sort of the zanier comedies aren't like Zelig isn't um, mm. because it's a mock documentary and that's not something that kind of really f- facilitates the midlife crisis idea but he I think his sort of neuroses and his sort of the, the, the focus on um, on sort of uh, psychoanalysis um, kind <laughs> that's of, easy for you to say <laughs> kind of makes his work kind of easy to see as sort of men in crisis and you know just because of his age uh, but you can even see it sort of ants, which is obviously yeah. he's cast because it's a midlife crisis film about an ant, and he's the perfect choice to play a neurotic worker ant. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of um, it's kind of built into his persona. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think we've um, we've pretty much covered adulthood, um, <laughs> even though it is a vast expanse of time and films. Uh, we've wrapped it up in uh, less than an hour. Um, should we fire off a few uh, films for our kind of further viewing section, the ones we perhaps haven't had time to talk about? Yeah, sure. Do you want to go first, or should I? Yeah, yeah. I got like one of my favourite films of like uh, kind of the last ten, fifteen years. Uh, Sideways, uh, the Alexander Payne film Alexander Payne does do aging characters incredibly well and and uh, sideways is a is a really obvious example to talk about probably why we didn't talk about it in the podcast is it is pretty obvious uh, of uh, you know kind of two men going away on a kind of 
uh, I suppose a belated kind of stag do I guess um, and uh, yeah generally um, learning a little bit too much about each other and uh, not enough about themselves okay uh, my one first one would be um, Shaun of the Dead which I oh, think I. Is, uh, is, a, is a film that kind of does the whole slacker arrested development midlife uh, sort of quarter life crisis sort of thing where um, you know, uh, Sean is sort of this 28-year-old who's in a relationship that is, you know, he loves his girlfriend, but he can't really make a sort of a commitment or a change in his life. He's just happy to sort of go to the pub every night and sort of coast along. He still lives in sort of a student E-flat with his two kind of um, flatmate, housemates and everything like that. And he just, there's nothing that, that kind of forces him to make a change until his girlfriend leaves him and then zombies show up. Um, mm. And I think that's a it's a the thing I really love about that film is the way it really captures the sense of being caught in a sort of monotonous routine and going through the same thing every day and being in um, sort of a situation that's not uh, terribly good, but then also having then kind of injecting the super out instead of having the kind of element that forces them to change be you know uh, sort of a, a sort of a mundane uh, changes you know the end of the world. Uh, and mm. seeing how sort of someone who is who up until that point has shown sort of no ability is kind of forced to kind of uh, respond to that and also has no ability even when he does respond yeah it's a nice extension of space as well which does mm. did that kind of that post uni thing uh, and that kind of the, for the first episode where Daisy's talking about her well I got third but then you know <laughs> so did Michelle so did Michelle from EastEnders uh, <laughs> and that kind of thing it's uh, you know it's kind of perfect summation of that especially from a kind of English point of view um, oh, yeah. I'm going to throw a left field uh, choice in there uh, which I bet you didn't think of which is uh, the film JCVD uh, <laughs> no a, I hadn't thought of that one a very very peculiar uh, film in which John Claude Van Damme, the uh, titular JCVD, uh, plays himself, um, but instead of being a kind of um, a, a wronged cop or a AWOL soldier uh, out for revenge for his brother's death, uh, as he is in 95% of all his films, uh, he plays himself as a kind of washed up uh, action star who's too old to do his own stunts, who's kind of very much. Uh, uh, kind of jaded by his uh, his career and the, the kind of director video route it took in the 2000s and features an amazing scene uh, it's a kind of like a near unbroken kind of five minute monologue where he just lifts literally is lifted out of the scene on a crane of the, he's caught up in a bank robbery or something is it a post office robbery or something he's caught up in I can't yeah, remember yeah. The, the kind of contrivance of it but then like he basically sits down on the the kind of crane and it lifts him up out of shot and he basically has this kind of one to one breakdown on camera <laughs> and I remember watching it just thinking this is fucking great this is really good <laughs> but then like obviously since that finish he's just gone back to making like Time Cop 6 or like yeah. whatever it is but um, as a as a very truthful film by someone you wouldn't expect I think that's a that's quite an interesting choice uh, that I've made there you go me slapping myself on the back uh, uh, my next one would be uh, sorry I've just got a long list of films I'm trying to think of which one Right, you've got, you got two two more you can pick oh that's the problem just having to pick mm. between the two uh, I go for um, I talked about Mike Nichols earlier with The Graduate I go for Carnal Knowledge it's from oh, 1971 yeah. have you seen that one? I have yes it's uh, Art Garfunkel and, and um, uh, Jack Nicholson um, and uh, Rita Marino from West Side Story plays that kind of prostitute in the end there you go yeah, that's uh, all, all I remember the, from it I think that one uh, is a, is a very interesting film because it, it it follows a sort of male friendship over about sort of twenty years, um, which is why the beginning of it, where they're college students and they look like Art Garfunkel and Jack Nicholson, is um, is unintentionally hilarious. Uh, but it kind of follows their relationship over this long period of time. And the interesting thing about it is it it's a very male friendship. Their their kind of connection is over about sort of bedding women and they're kind of like just constantly talking about the, the various relationships in their life and it kind of follows them throughout that time but it kind of also has an arrested development sort of thing to it where even as they get married and you know sort of have these different relationships 
they don't their their central their central relationship to each other doesn't really change that much um which is eventually kind of comes to the detriment of the friendship you know when they're when they're sort of in their sort of 40s and they still sort of relate to each other on this kind of quite sort of immature level um and i think it's a really uh, fascinating portrait of of sort of the, the the a lot of the themes we're talking about because it touched it covers such a long period of time yeah it's pretty dark as well isn't it Connor knowledge Connor knowledge yeah it is it's very um it's very bleak um mm. not not the kind of knockabout romp that uh that uh, the graduate is yeah yeah um my last pick um is uh when i was younger this was one of my favorite films ever and um uh it's a film that i'm actually scared to revisit because i'm sure it's really good but i just don't want that thing when you watch a film from your childhood and um it turns out to be crap but i'm sure it won't be um but i just haven't got around to rewatching it yet but uh the film is city slickers um the film in which uh, Billy Crystal and his two friends Daniel Stern and Bruno Kirby uh, decide that their lives are too mundane and boring and the, it opens with Billy Crystal telling his kids class what he does and he doesn't really have a, a job that he could be proud of he sells advertising space on radio so they decide to go out and do one last big kind of manly pursuit which is to drive some cattle across uh, kind of Montana or something and um, it's a really warm really affectionate incredibly likeable comedy um, which showcases uh, all three of those actors at their very best and that given that Daniel Stern is in Home Alone 1 and 2 is saying quite something are you a fan of City Slickers Ed? are you going to leave me hanging on this one? I am yeah I was actually thinking about Bruno Kirby the other day um, because I was trying I was thinking about an episode of the Larry Sanders show which has the uh, the kind of weird tragic element to it where because there's a scene in it in which Bruno Kirby and Phil Hartman have sort of a pissing match with each other over who has the best career mm. and um, yeah just because they're both now uh, deceased uh, you know yeah. watching that for the first time is, is kind of like watching ghosts kind of like talk to each other uh, but you yeah. know I do you're right about City because it is yeah, I think it, it is in some ways kind of sullied by the sequel which obviously has the, the dumbest sort of um, premise for bringing back the standout character from the first one. Yeah, who, uh, who is of, dead. Yeah, of um, having him be play his uh, his own twin brother, which is mm. a, a, such a dreadful, silly conceit, uh, and also has a terrible subtitle, um, which is up there for sort of uh, with uh, Electric Boogaloo as sort of subtitles, just kind of to tack on to unnecessary sequels. Uh, mm. But the first one is a lot is is really good and was a huge hit for a very good reason. Mm, yeah, yeah. All right, and Jake Gyllenhaal's in it. He plays uh, plays Billy Crystal's son as a child. Mm. He's also in a episode of Homicide: Life on the Street from the very same period, where he plays uh, Robin Williams's uh, son in an episode where Robin Williams' wife is gunned down in the street. Um, uh, yeah, he he uh, he played a lot of famous people's children. Days. I think it helps from having sort of people in the industry as your parents. Yeah, bloody nepotism. Sil- silver spoon in the mouth. <laughs> um, okay, take take us home with your last choice, Ed. Okay, my last choice. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, about the Thomas McCarthy film, uh, The Visitor. So I'm going to end with another one, which is The Station Agent. Oh, that's a great film. Which is an absolutely wonderful film. Got a, a brilliant uh, central performance from. Uh, Peter Dinklage as a man who is in sort of a, oh, he's in a sort of similar situation to what we were all we were talking about, which is you know he's in a job that he um, he doesn't seem to hate, but he just kind of tolerates. You know his life's in a very sort of this kind of very sort of static situation, and then he finds out that a friend of him has bequeathed a sort of a a, a cabin to him, uh, which you know he doesn't really want but he kind of goes up there to stay in it and you know Bobby kind of Arlie comes over and starts talking to him and wants to be friends and they watch trains uh, and he forms a sort of friendship with Patricia Clarkson and so it's, it's a really lovely character study of these sort of all these sort of slightly damaged people well maybe not Bobby Carnavale who just seems happy to be alive mm. <laughs> he's just like this uh, bottomless well of positivity in that movie uh, but you know certainly Patricia Clarkson is a character who seems a little sort of like 
um, frail and sort of maybe not entirely happy with sort of her life and sort of uh, but it's it's nice it's a really nice portrait of how a sort of a slight change can kind of lead to really profound changes in sort of people and I think it's uh, it's an absolutely beautiful film uh, everyone should see yep all of those films you should see even the JCVD one um, so yeah w- there you go uh, ungrateful listeners we've given we've given you a wealth of films to go and investigate um, and uh, enjoy um, so yeah that's it from us this week it wasn't too bad to get back on the saddle after a long time off Ed no I think we, we got back into the swing of it it's just like riding a bike Yes. So uh, back in the saddle, riding a bike, got into the swing of it. We we mix our metaphors as good as anyone. Um, so yeah, until next time, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.